This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Dozens of tenants of a Parkdale apartment building are facing eviction for using air conditioning. Some who've lived there for decades say that's never been a problem before. The property manager, Myriad Management, says they're not doing anything illegal and have given tenants the option of paying for running window units. The mayor's weighed in, saying the city cannot have evictions based on what he calls a loophole. This comes as there'll be heat waves during the summer and opens a larger question. Shouldn't government mandate maximum temperatures in rentals the same way it enforces minimum temperatures in the winter? Libby caught up with Parkdale High Park NDP MPP Butilla Carpoche, City Councilor Paula Fletcher, and Daniel Majid, staff lawyer at Advocacy Center for Tenants Ontario. So my office was contacted by tenants who live in the building at 130 Jameson. And uh, we also learned that this was uh, a situation uh, in terms of the eviction notices uh, being sent uh, to approximately 50 tenants, uh, which is, you know, a large number. And uh, as well that the tenancy notice, I mean, the eviction notice uh, basically said that their tenancy was being terminated early because tenants have ACs in their units. This being a very serious health and safety issue, uh, you know, basically um, got us to act very quickly because we wanted to ensure that one, uh, tenants could uh, continue using their ACs in order to stay cool, and two, that uh, the eviction notices would be withdrawn by the landlord. Dania Majid, does it depend on what the leases say? I'm told that the leases say that, uh, or some of the leases say that tenants cannot operate any appliance not supplied by the landlord. Or is there some kind of right people have to run these units? Yeah, so you are right. It uh, depends on two things, what the lease itself says and whether there are any uh, terms within the lease um, that outlines the air conditioning use and whether or not the electricity is uh, being covered by the rent or is it an additional charge um, that a tenant pays in addition to the rent. Uh, so that is the starting point in determining, you know, the legality of, um, you know, the units or whether or not the landlord could be uh, asking for additional charges. However, based on what we have uh, heard uh, in the media reports, it sounds like uh, many tenants have had air conditioning units that have been used um, and have been running in their units for years. Um, so there might be, you know, an argument to be made that uh, the landlord was aware that these units have been in place and have been running upwards of, you know, I've heard nine to 13 years. Um, they had knowledge, they did not object, and therefore the tenants might have uh, ground to say that they had implied consent from the landlord to have those units, or it's too late for them to enforce the rights at this point. Uh, I gather it's a new property manager. 
Uh, that's my understanding, and um, that doesn't really make a difference at the end of the day um, because you know the property. You know, when a new property manager steps in, they they are taking the contracts that have been made with the tenants, the arrangements that have been made with the tenants as is. Paula Fletcher, I was going back uh, to see what was going on with this idea of mandating a maximum temperature. And it took me back to 2017. And that is three years before the pandemic. And there was a motion about this. It was put forward by Josh Matlow, seconded by the mayor. And, you know, we've had this heat dome experience in BC that killed 600 people. This has come up before. Uh, what happened with that? Uh, that really is, unfortunately, the city can't do that. We, um, I don't want to pass the buck, but everything under the residential tenancies, everything is a provincial matter. So the city had asked the province, please take into account that with climate change and as you just said, these heat domes, we actually need to have a maximum temperature now, not just a minimum. Because throughout the year, in September, October, in the spring, it's very hot, unlike it used to be maybe 20 or 30 years ago. So this is, this is really a, a, a on the agenda situation now. Parkdale High Park NDP MPP, Butilla Carpoche, City Councilor Paula Fletcher, and Dania Majid, staff lawyer at Advocacy Centre for Tenants Ontario. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Kompsik for Jane Brown. Did the Trudeau government try to use the inquiry into the worst mass shooting in our history to bolster its agenda? Did they pressure the RCMP commissioner to release information to bolster that effort? Another damning document has emerged in the scandal surrounding the Nova Scotia mass shooting inquiry. Former Stephen Harper cabinet minister and native Nova Scotian, Peter McKay, joined Libby to discuss. This is a a sobering subject to be sure and certainly is being followed very closely by people here in Nova Scotia, but around the country, as you've laid it out, it's, uh, it's very troubling, first and foremost, for the victims who are in the midst of getting this information through the Mass Casualties Commission, the Mass Murder Commission, to be clear. And it's also a, a very, you know, sad day today. They're uh, commemorating the loss of one of their own, that is the RCMP. Uh, Heidi Stevenson, her memorial is being held today here in Nova Scotia. Why is this something that we should be really concerned about in terms of the interference? Well, in simple terms, the RCMP commissioner is the, the head of the RCMP, obviously, Brenda Lucky, and through disclosures that came out at this inquiry, so evidence under under sworn testimony, it would appear that, uh, that she uh, relayed to officers here in Nova Scotia, firstly, that she was upset that more information wasn't made public about the caliber of the rifles. There were two rifles and two pistols involved in these mass murders. And she had communicated to both the communications officer and the chief superintendent in Nova Scotia that she wanted more information out there in the public about these weapons um, because she'd had a conversation with the public safety minister at the time, Bill Blair, and presumably this had also come from the prime minister's office. And this was all in, in furtherance of liberal legislation to bring in stricter gun 
regulations. And so there's a, a very partisan, and I would call it poison political angle to all of this, where in the aftermath of the worst shooting in Canadian history, um, the politics of this were front and center, uh, even trumping an ongoing active investigation. Now, one thing that has to be said right off the bat, Libby, is that the weapons uh, appear to have come in from the United States, making them illegal. And so there is no connection here between a stricter gun registration having any deterrent or any sort of public safety aspect. This was politics at its worst. What is, of course, contradicting uh, what the commissioner herself is saying and the minister is saying is that this was all recorded, as police officers tend to do in, in investigations, in notes that have now been subpoenaed and brought forward in the in the actual inquiry. And so, as the old saying goes, somebody here is telling the truth and somebody is lying. And the officers closest to the investigation who are testifying and who are providing their notes, I, I would suggest, are doing so out of a sense of obligation, closer proximity to the actual investigation, and doing so under oath. Peter, we're out of time on this. Uh, what will be the next shoe to drop? Well, that's hard to say. I, I think you're, uh, you're hearing testimony um, continue to this very day. And what, what I see, unfortunately, is a lot of dissatisfaction on the part of the victims to, to get to the root of uh, why the information wasn't put out to the public sooner about the actual jeopardy that people were in. And in rural parts of this province, um, where police are not moments away, people can take actions themselves to protect themselves. That's not suggesting that they uh, arm themselves, but it's suggesting they at least take themselves out of harm's way. And when they don't know uh, what to do or where the police are or where the potential threat may exist, that uh, that exposes them to more danger. And, and I think that's what a lot of the uh, the inquiry is now focusing on is how this was communicated to the public so inadequately and how the RCMP themselves seem to be in disarray in their response. Former Stephen Harper Cabinet Minister Peter McKay. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Coming up after the break, just how much delinquent taxpayers owe Canada revenue. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Canadians failed to pay $111 billion in taxes between the years 2014 and 2018. That, according to Canada Revenue Agency, which points out more specifically, individuals did not pay between 42 and 53 billion in personal income tax, while corporations failed to pay between 23 and nearly 37 billion. Libby talked with Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. The amount of money we're talking about, over $23 billion a year, that's a huge number. And I think it's important to Canadians for, for a few reasons. But most importantly, you know, that's a lot of money that could be otherwise uh, allowing the government to have more revenue, which could lead to lowering taxes on Canadians writ large. Uh, if you're talking about $23 billion a year, you could cut the 
uh, harmonized sales tax by over 2% a year. Uh, and you'd come out even there. So it's a, it's a lot of uh, missing money, and uh, you know it's leading in some cases to the government to pursue higher taxes. As far as I know, you don't simply not pay the CRA. They'll come after you unless you file for bankruptcy, which I guess is a legal process. Well, there's certainly that, but one of one of the other routes is if, for example, you're self-employed, uh, you can still do your taxes every year, indicate to the government uh, how much you owe, and then simply not pay it. Uh, and then you would be charged interest on that missing money. So the CRA would come after you, but that that's uh, one of the ways that it could be done. Uh, most Canadians have money directly taken off their paychecks to go to income taxes, but if anyone is self-employed or runs a business, uh, then they have to uh, you know, file their own taxes and set aside that money on their own, which in some cases clearly isn't happening. You know, the government seems to be, or the CRA, which is not the gov- government, it's independent, they're going after uh, what I would call as small, you know, small overpayments. They have people like somebody who mistakenly got some CERB when they were on disability. Uh, so they're going after that. You know, why do you figure they're going after these small things as opposed to big things? Well, I think that's one of the things that's going to outrage many Canadians. Uh, you know, if the government overpaid in many cases, when we're talking about CERB, there was an extra $2,000 payment that happened at the beginning. Uh, we know that about a million Canadians uh, were, according to the government, overpaid. But yeah, we're talking about amounts uh, like $2,000. And you're again, you are talking about people who were potentially on disability, but at minimum, people who lost their jobs. Uh, and weren't working for a period, and obviously money was tight. So it's really questionable these, the government's priorities, the CRA's priorities. If they go, if they're failing to go after you know big companies that are hiding money offshore, but they are going after Canadians for a mistake that frankly the government made. It was the government that made these overpayments. Uh, they made them across the board to hundreds of thousands of people, um, and people took those payments expecting that it was part of the. That's part of the program. So, you know, these are all the concerns. Is it just that it's easier to go after, uh, you know, people who don't have fancy lawyers and tax advisors and whatever? Well, that may very well be the case. You know, people are just getting letters in the mail or emails from the CRA that they're, you know, owing $2,000. I think a lot of everyday Canadians, um, certainly I would, would be very, um, you know, uh, frustrated, but also concerned if you're getting a letter from the CRA. Uh, in this case, if you're talking about people who are, you know, constantly evading taxes or evading taxes for a long time, as you said, they probably have lawyers. Uh, they're probably not nearly as concerned with uh, their credit rating or uh, what's going to happen indirectly. So uh, definitely, um, but I think that it's uh, deeply concerning for any Canadian who gets that letter in the mail. And so I, the government may figure that these people are more likely to pay it back, but clearly they're not focusing on the right group of people. Okay, Jay Goldberg, what would you like to leave us with? Well, what I'd like to leave you with is that, you know, Canadians should definitely think about, if we're talking $23 billion a year, that's a huge amount of money that could otherwise go to tax cuts or or improve government services and things like health care. And so we absolutely should get on our politicians to make sure that they're collecting the tax revenue that is in the system uh, that's supposed to be collected uh, so that individual Canadians can get a break while we're facing such high inflation.
Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Federal health officials are telling Canadians to brace themselves for another round of COVID vaccines expected to roll out in the fall, and those behind on their boosters are being advised to catch up now. Chief Public Health Officer Theresa Tam says circulating Omicron subvariants BA4 and BA5 are even more transmissible and able to evade immunity than previous versions, making a rise in cases likely in coming weeks. All this as a new study finds that if you're over 50 and you get COVID, you're more likely to come down with shingles in the six months after you've had the virus. To discuss further, Libby talked with Dr. Craig Jenny, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. The risk is somewhat elevated for, for the first six months following recovery from COVID. So this is for people that have been previously exposed, often in childhood, to chickenpox. So the, the shingles virus is exactly the same virus as chickenpox. And when you've had it the first time, as often as a child, you clear the virus, you, you clear the, what, what appears to be the disease, but that virus is never completely gone from your body. It goes into this silent phase known as latency, and it can reactivate later in life. And that's where these shingles come from. So what we've been observing is that people that have tested positive for COVID or reported being positive for COVID, unfortunately you're seeing a slightly higher rate of shingles in those first six months after they've recovered from COVID. Is the SARS-CoV-2 virus related to the to to the chickenpox virus? I mean, no. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing. These are not even remotely related. Uh, likewise, there's no part of the vaccines. Even if you had the the AstraZeneca vaccine early, it's not remotely related to this chickenpox or the shingles virus. But what we know is that people tend to get shingles when their immune system gets stressed. So when their immunity begins to fade and their immune system is not functioning at the best. So we often see older individuals as their immune system begins to wane with age. If they get stressed, which further suppresses immunity, that's when this virus can reactivate. And what we're learning from COVID is that, you know, it's, it's a rough disease. It's putting the body through a lot. And that stresses the body that exhausts the immune system, and that's providing this window for, for a virus you may be carrying to reactivate. The other little piece of it is that we are also learning that other conditions such as long COVID are actually partly due to the fact that your immune system is suppressed after recovery. So we have lots of evidence that if you get COVID and you recover, your immune system doesn't bounce back to normal right away. It takes a little time and that provides this opportunity for shingles to to activate. What can people do in general to boost their immune immune systems if they're recovering from COVID? So there's actually a lot of strategies that can be used. So one is obviously trying to make sure good nutrition, good rest, taking vitamins if you're on a normal supplement. So things like that, just trying to ensure overall good health, sleep, stress, the big ones. But we also have to remember that there are some very effective vaccines against shingles. So if you're of the at-risk age group and you qualify for vaccination, we know that those do continue to work even if you've recovered from COVID. So it's a combination of making sure you're doing the best for your body, keeping your immune system up, but also if you've had chickenpox to consider getting that shingles vaccine. Okay, so, uh, you know, these days 
I know a lot of people getting COVID and I think in general, they're probably recovering at home, even though, you know, it's not trivial, they're sick. But I think that uh, what you're saying boils down to uh, it's, it's worth having a good conversation with your doctor as you're recovering. Absolutely. Particularly when you do get to the age of of qualifying for these shingles vaccines, whether you've had COVID or not, there's a lot of shingles out there. It it unfortunately has been on the rise for a number of years. And we think that's due to the fact that traditionally children have had chickenpox and that served as our booster. When when we were adults or or grandparents, your grandchildren would have chickenpox. They would be your booster. You'd be re-exposed. We don't see that anymore because we're vaccinating the kids against chickenpox. So there has been a, a good reason to, to get a shingle shot prior to COVID. And now COVID has really honestly amplified that as the risk has gone up significantly. Okay. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, I think it's just whenever there is a question, you know, do not hesitate to, to talk to your, your uh, family health care provider. They are there for that and they want to help. Dr. Craig Jenny, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to The Best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. John in Toronto weighed in on some Parkdale apartment tenants facing eviction for their air conditioning usage. I look after a senior as a PSW in a building downtown Toronto. And his lease is 1957. I have been harassed around every year around May. You got to pay extra for this. I said, look, those air conditions, air conditioners were installed professionally. I've been living here for 27 years caring for him, but my name isn't on the lease. So I have no rights. I'm a guest and he's special needs and nonverbal, but this ongoing fight because his rent is so low. Uh, and they're using the air conditioners as a vehicle to get him compromised. So we persevere and we endure. But, you know, you still got to have enough energy at the end of the week to fight these things. After hearing that the CAA finds 98% of all drivers in Ontario had witnessed unsafe driving behaviors last year, a slight increase from the year before, Ron in Guelph called in. I've been driving all my life, highway coaches on every highway and North America. And right now, um, part of the problem is lack of driver training. Um, part of it, as I said, from you go from the Oshawa to Milton and north to Barrie, and it seems like everybody wants to be on a racetrack, right? I'm trying to do between 100 and 105. And even with heavy traffic, there are still drivers think that they can weave in and out at 125 without any consequences, right? And the consequences, unfortunately, with the traffic being that congested, the consequences, you never see just a a small one-car collision. When the collisions are out there, they're usually multi-car collisions because you've got um, four or five vehicles involved at the speeds that they're they're traveling. Nobody can stop quick enough in case of an emergency. Nelson and Strathroy also wanted to talk about the increase in dangerous driving. 
everybody has this uh, concept of me first and everyone else fall behind me. Um, if everybody thought of, of treating everybody equally and the consideration of everyone else on the road or, or even in the airport, and if everyone treated me as badly as I'm treating others, how would I feel? And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Roger and Caledon, who called in on our segment on balance and longevity. I just want to mention a couple other things that um, that are like this, similar to this. And I, again, I don't know how accurate these are to tell how long you live, but I saw it on the morning talk show the other day. They have you put like a four foot um, bar. And you lean forward and you put, lay it down in front of you. Not lay it down, but you hold it in front of you and you step over it and, and then step back over it. Apparently that tells you something too. Well, the second one real quickly, Libby, is if you sit down cross-legged and you're supposed to be able to stand up. Without using your hands. I yes. think that would be a bit difficult, actually. I know, but that's, that tells you apparently something. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.